Good morning again. Uh, for those of you that I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're with us today, whether you're worshiping here in the building or whether you're worshiping online with us, we are grateful that you're with us today. Uh, if you are worshiping online and haven't been in the building yet, we'd love for you to come and worship with us sometime in person. Um, I hope that you have had a great uh, start to your new year. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to all that God is going to do in and through this local church body as well as other churches around the world, yes, but specifically as we gather as a church family, we're looking forward to what God's going to do here in and through us. And, and I would encourage you, I'm, I'm not a New Year's resolution guy, like I'm not anti, like if you set resolutions, that's fine, but I don't set resolutions, but I do think that the beginning of a, of a new year is kind of a, kind of a, a mental thought of, oh my goodness, it's kind of fresh, it's new, I can try something uh, new or I can uh, commit to something anew. And so I would ask you, would you commit anew today, this week, this year, to follow Jesus. And what I want to be careful with is not say, hey guys, we have a lot of things going on at church, and so would you commit to going to all the things that we do at church? I am going to ask you to do those things, but the direction is I want to follow Jesus and, and be a disciple. I, I want to be a disciple who makes disciples. I want to know what it means to be the church. I want to do all of this to the glory of God. And the reason that we have the programs and activities and events that we have is not to fill our calendar with stuff to do, but rather we believe as a staff and as elders and as ministry leaders that the things that we're doing are designed to help us grow in our faith. And so I would ask you, would you consider committing this year to live your life, to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church, the glory of God. And here's some ways you can do that. And this isn't the sermon yet, so don't start my timer yet. So here's the deal. I would ask you, would you commit to using this year to study and read and meditate on the word of the Lord? That you would dive into God's scripture, his word, the Bible, and study it this year. If you're not sure, where do I start? Where do I want to begin? I don't have a reading plan or whatever. I kind of need some pointers. Touch base with me or the office this week. and We'd love to kind of set you up with some thoughts on how you could do that. But let's commit to being people of the word this year. Also, another way that you can commit your life to following Jesus is committing to and signing up for and being a part of a hope group. We have small groups that happen during the course of the week. Most of them happen on a weeknight. There are a couple of groups that meet on Sundays right after church. So perhaps you're not in a hope group and you decide, you know what, I'm going to stay after the service today and I'm going to check out this thing called a hope group. But I, wanted you to, I want you to consider not just signing up for a hope group, but actually committing to being a part of one, like actively engaged to be a part of a group that is doing life together. Another thing that you saw in the video, if you were here during the video, is we have some equipping classes that are starting in three weeks on January the 28th, and we have all kinds of options. I'm not going to walk through them because Ricky already did that, but jump in one of our equipping classes. And then the last thing I want to mention is find a place to serve within the body of Christ. Uh, last night I was at uh, the ball game, which we shall not mention the outcome, but I was at the ball game. And the reality is that there were a lot of free tickets that were given. And our church was the recipient of 45 of those tickets. And so there were a lot of free tickets handed out and the general admission was sold out. But guess what? When I got to the game, there were tons of general admission ticket seats available. You know why? 
because there were a lot of free tickets given out, and whenever you get a free ticket, there's no real incentive to be there, and so sometimes when you get a free ticket, you don't show up. The reality is, I got a free ticket, I did show up, but what I was saying to one of the guys that were there, one of our deacons, Scott Logan, I was like, you got to have skin in the game to be able to really invest in something, right? And so the reality is this, if we're not careful, we will think that being a part of the church is simply attending a worship service. But the reality is being a part of the church is doing life together, which includes serving within the body of Christ. And so if you've not got a place to serve, we can definitely hook you up with that. So all that to say, we're not looking for you to sign up for church things. We're looking for all of us to commit our life to Christ. And we feel like these things are some of the things that help us in that process. All right, now I'm to the sermon. All right, there we go. So when you came in, you probably picked up a worship guide. And on the back of the worship guide, you can see that I have enjoyed my last two weeks. There are no notes on here. I did prepare. I am going to share them with you. There are going to, I almost fell off. There are going to be some notes on the screen, but the reality is I've been on vacation for two weeks and it's been a blessing. I'm grateful that Jacob Justice was able to preach for me last Sunday. I know that the service went well, but we, and we were worshiping with my mom and my sisters at their church in Brownwood, Texas. But it is good to be back and ready to hit the road running. So we're going to do that very thing. Pull out your sermon notes which are blank, but you've got lots of space to write in. Pull out a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible near you, underneath a chair, around you. Grab one. We'll be in the book of Acts. So here's the deal. You ever watch TV and heard somebody say, last time on such and such show? I'm going to do that with you today. Last time on to the ends of the earth, we left you with a cliffhanger. Back in mid-November, we pressed pause on our study of the book of Acts. Today we hit play again. There's three weeks of Acts. Then we're going to hit uh, the prophet Micah. But as we finish up Acts, let's pick up where we were last time. At the end of Acts chapter 27, we see that Paul was on a ship. And this ship was bound for Rome. He was going to appear before Caesar. He's appealed his case to Caesar. And as he's going on this ship, they hit a horrible storm. They get lost in the storm. And then they end up shipwrecked on the shore. And then at the end of verse, chapter 27, we see that they swam safely and everybody landed there. And we press pause, and today we're going to start it all up again. Through all that I just described and all throughout Paul's life, we see one principle that is true, and that is the principle of God's providence. So I'd encourage you to write that on your, on your notes there. That's my first point, is God's providence. You see, all along, God was protecting Paul and guiding his life for God's purposes. That, that's what God's providence is all about. God's providence is God's love and care for and watching over us. And that's exactly what took place in Paul's life. Even in the midst of this storm and this shipwreck and all the chaos that his life brought his way. God was protecting Paul. He had plans for Paul. And namely, those plans were that Paul was going to be a part of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why this series is titled To the Ends of the Earth. And God was going to use Paul to do that very thing. Namely, God intended for Paul to go to Rome. And so if he's going to die in a shipwreck, that means he's not going to end up in Rome. And so God wanted him to share the gospel in, in Rome. And therefore, he, in his providence, provided a way for Paul to arrive safely in Rome eventually. We're not to Rome quite yet. You see, nothing and no one could interfere with God's plan. And I want you to know that whatever God's plan is, nothing 
and no one can interfere with it. God's plan is, God's desire is, that all the world would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's why it's our job and responsibility to take the gospel out. That's why it's our job and responsibility to pray that others would take the gospel out. That's why for some of you, perhaps God is calling you to be a missionary and pick up your home and leave and go from College Station to another part of the world to engage with a people group that needs the gospel. That's why we've got friends like our friends Jeff and Rachel that are in another country halfway around the world and they are actively sharing the gospel in places where the gospel has not reached. That's why we are engaged with sharing the gospel. And the reality is this, that life will be difficult, life will face, we will face challenges in life, but the reality is that God's plans for you and for his kingdom will not be stopped by anything or anyone. And in his providence, he is making a way for his plans to be victorious. And so today, we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to see that God's providential care for Paul continues. So let's look at Acts chapter 28. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to pause there, and then we'll read the rest of the verses in a moment. Here's what it says. Remember, they've just shipwrecked on this shore and they've swam safely there and here we are after we were brought safely through there were 276 i forget the exact number uh that were there yeah 276 276 people were brought safely to shore we then learned that the island where they landed was called malta the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper or a snake came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. All right, I want us to pause right here and I want us to consider the many ways that we see God's providence in these first six verses. And I'm going to actually kind of list them in backwards order. And here they are. We see the most obvious one, and that is that God spared Paul's life from a deadly poisonous viper or snake that bit him and he didn't die. Another way we see God's providence through this is that God used the native people on the island of Malta to show great kindness to them. And then the last thing is, in God's providence in these verses that I see, is that they landed on Malta. You're like, I don't understand how landing on Malta could be showing God's providence. You're like, oh, because they didn't die. Well, yes, but I mean, they landed on Malta. That is key to seeing God's providence in this process, I think. All right, so we're going to look at a couple of maps. The first map that we're going to see is the map we looked at uh, from a few weeks ago. You may not be able to see all these red lines, but there's a red line from Caesarea up to, uh, up to Sidon, over here to Myra, all around here, around here, past Crete, and then we kind of have this map trailing off right here because we were saying they were lost at sea well now we know the rest of the story they land at malta which is that island right there but i want us to see where malta is in the world so let's go to the next slide and it's going to show you the same route up through here okay and then here's malta you see this right here that is sicily 
And you see this right here, this is Italy. Sicily is an island, it's the boot uh, the toe, I should say, of the boot of Italy. Where is Rome? I don't know where it is, and I should have looked it up. But it's on that boot, right? Oh, there it is, there it is. If I could read, I would see it. There's Rome right there. So the reality is, while they landed at Malta, I believe that it's God's providence that they landed at Malta because Malta was on the popular route to get to Rome anyway. And so while they are drifting at sea and the storm is bad they have no idea where they're going god in his providence didn't just let them drift to africa he didn't let them go to some random place but reality is this that in the midst of the storm they had no gps system but god was their gps system and in the midst of the storm they still then ended up in the direction they needed to go and so here is malta it's about 60 miles south of sicily and it's about 180 north, miles northeast of Africa. So God could have let them go all the way to Africa, and they would have been a long ways from where they were going. But the reality is they ended up very close, and therefore in just a few short months they'd be able to go up to Rome. God sustained them through the storm and kept them on course. I said a moment ago that one of the ways that we saw God's providence is that the people there, the natives, were kind to them and showed them hospitality if you were to look at the Greek word for natives, it would be a word that we get the word barbarian from. And so it's saying that the people there on the island were barbarians. You're like, oh my goodness, that doesn't sound too good. The reality is barbarian does not mean savage, mean person. The word barbarian just simply means someone that's not a Greek speaker. And so here they are, this group of people that would have known Greek, and that would have been the primary language they used to communicate, are on this boat, they have a crash, they have a wreck, they swim ashore, there's 276 of them there, and they end up on this place where the people don't speak their language, they're barbarians, if you will, and yet these people, who could have been difficult to them, and attacked them, and caused them great problems, instead they showed them great hospitality. It says that they built them a fire. Can you imagine how cold these folks must have been? Like they just came in from the swim through the ocean. They thought they're going to die or through the sea. They think they're going to die. They get up on shore. And then if you look at the verses that we just read, you'll see that not only are they wet, but also in verse 2, it says that it had begun to rain and it was cold. So they are wet already there's more rain falling and it's cold outside it's miserable and yet the people there showed them great hospitality so god again in his providence is providing for them the interesting thing is in the esv in verse 2 it says that they showed unusual kindness the word unusual kindness the greek word there is the key the same word as philanthropy so perhaps you've heard of someone who's a philanthropist in other words not only were they kind to the people they actually showed great generosity instead of attacking them so we see god's providence all throughout this and then the glaringly obvious one is what happens with paul right so they land, they get there. Paul does what he always does. He's looking for a way to serve and to assist people. And so he goes, you know what? They got us a fire. It's going to need more wood. I'm not going to send somebody else after wood. I'm going to go gather wood myself. So he's not to say that no one else is, but Paul at least is. So he's gathering wood. He throws the wood on the fire. And in the middle of it all, he un, uh, un, un, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say. On accident, that's the word I'm looking for. On accident, he stumbles across a snake, a viper, a poisonous snake that attaches itself to his hand. 
And I love what it says there in verse 4 or so, where, where Paul is just calmly, it says there in verse 3, no, 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 let's see, where is that? Shook it off. Uh, there we go, verse 5. Uh, he, however, Paul, shook off the creature. It's like he just called, oh, oh, a viper bit me? Okay, just chunk it in the fire and keep going about my business, right? Well, God spares his life, so we see his providence. And in the middle of it all, the people of, the, 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 of Malta there, the barbarians, the natives, they see what takes place. And whenever he gets bit by this snake and he doesn't die right away, they sit back and watch and wait for him to fall over dead. It's not just because he got bit by a snake, but also their superstitious um, religious uh, instincts kind of kick in. And here's what's going on. Whenever he gets bit... They assume that Paul, and doesn't die, that he is somehow a murderer and that justice is about to take him out. Did did you see the word justice? Depending on your translation, the word justice is probably capitalized. In verse 4, it says, though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What they're saying is this guy's a bad guy. He didn't die in the shipwreck, but by golly, Justice is going to take him out, and justice will have him die by a snake bite when a shipwreck did not get him. This word justice here carries with it this idea of a goddess or a force that's almost like fate. And so the reason justice is capitalized is because either the Greek, a Greek goddess or one of their local goddesses, they're assuming, is taking out this guy. And so that's what's going on. That's why they think he is a murderer. Uh, And then whenever he doesn't die, they switch gears 180 degrees and go the opposite way. They thought justice was going to kill him. Oh, he didn't die, so therefore he must be a god. This is actually the second time in Paul's life that we know of that he's been called a god. If you look back, we're not going to look there right now, but if you were to look back at Acts chapter 14, you'd see in Lystra that one time Paul was called a god. The reality is Paul, as we know, was not a god. There's only one true God, and that God himself was with Paul. And the reason that he survived this snake bite is not because he's a God, but because this great God of ours was providentially taking care of him. All of this and much more show us that Paul is being sustained by loving, caring God. I want us to pause for a moment. A lot of times I'll have questions on the screen today. I do not have them on the screen. If you want to write them down, you're going to need to write them down, or your hope group will probably discuss them as well. Here's a question that I want to ask, a couple of them, as it relates to God's providence in your life. Here's the first one. What are some specific ways that you have seen God's providence in your life? I I don't want you to think generally like, oh, I can breathe today. Well, yeah, that's God's providence. But think specifically in your life, through your experiences, either currently or in the past, where is it in your life that you have seen specifically where God's providential care for you has taken place? This morning, as we were singing um, one of the songs, I was reflecting in my own life that I'm not going to take the time to share with you. I would on an individual conversation, but I'm not going to right here. Where I have sung that song before, God's goodness will follow after me. That song meant so much to me in one of the most dark places that I had been in my life where I needed God to watch over me. So I was reminded that he saw me through that situation. God's providence is there for us. And then the second question that I want to ask in this section is this. How do you handle it 
when God's providential care for you is less evident. I'm not saying he's not providentially watching over you. I am saying, would we not acknowledge that there are times in our life where we go, I know theologically and mentally and logically that God is watching over me, but right now in this moment, it could not feel any further than the truth. I don't know, I looked down to my friend Kristen just now and I thought of when Briley, if I can speak, fell and cracked her head open. Not open, but she did break her, ne- uh, her, her, her scalp, right? Her skull. I don't want to speak for Kristen and Chad, but in that moment, if I were them, I might have been going, I know logically and theologically and truthfully that God's providence is with us, but right now, honestly, I don't feel it because my daughter has a severe injury and I don't know what's going to happen. My question is, in your life, when something difficult comes and things are not going the way you want them to go, are you, how do you react to that? We need to remember that God's providence is still there, regardless of what our circumstances seem to indicate. Side note, I looked over and saw Briley just then. Good news is she's doing well. I read the update. It's amazing how God is working in her life. I want to read the rest of the verses that we have set aside. So we've seen God's providence, and I want to read verses 7 through 10. We're going to see his providence one more time in these verses, and then we're going to look at one other angle. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place in Malta were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, the head honcho guy named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably, which is the same word as the philanthropy we looked at a moment ago, for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, we're not going to go through verse 11 right now, but if you glance down at verse 11, you'll see that all this that we just read about in verses 1 through 10 takes place over a three-month period. Because verse 11 says three months later, they get on a boat and they head off, right? So in these three months, we see that the natives become comfortable with these folks enough that God's providence shows up again because at the end of verse 10, it says that the natives gave them everything they needed. They had shipwrecked. They had nothing, I can't think of the name of the movie right now, Tom, Tom Hanks movie, right? Like when he crashed and all of that and he made use of the stuff he had. He didn't really have anything when he got rescued, right? You'd have to go somewhere to get the things you need, right? So in this scenario, they had shipwrecked, they had nothing they needed, and yet God in his providence provided for them because the people, the natives, gave them everything they needed. So don't overlook God's providence there. But on top of all that, not only do we see God's providence in these last few verses, I want us to look at, at Paul's faithfulness. So the title of, my, of my, my, uh, my message, I'm having trouble with my words this morning. My, my title of my message this morning is God's providence and Paul's faithfulness. So we've looked at God's providence. Now let's look at Paul's faithfulness. You see, in this situation, as Paul usually does, he finds his way to the leader. Think about all of the encounters, if you've been a part of us as we've looked through the book of Acts, over and over again, Paul finds the leader a lot of times, or a, a kind of a person in charge, and spends time with them, and true to his story, he ends up with 
Publius here, or Publius, however you want to say his name, and the reality is, again, I think that's God's providence bringing him to him. Perhaps when he came to this official, he was able to do so because the people thought he was a god, so they sent him to see the leader of the island. Either way, we see in this, these verses that he spends three days with the leader of the island getting to know him. And while he was there, it was during this time that he found out that Publius's father was sick. It says he had fever and dysentery. I've never had dysentery. I've heard about it, and I don't think I want that, right? So it was not a good thing. It was interesting. I'd never realized this before, but as I was studying this week, I found out that there's actually a condition called, it's not the official name for it, I know, that's called Malta fever. And they discovered in the 1800s what the cause of this Malta fever is. And we don't know that Publius's father had Malta fever, but it very well could be, okay? And what they found out is it can be caused by drinking bad goat's milk. And so it was, it's possible that this guy had uh, Malta fever. And the interesting thing is Malta fever averages four months for you to feel better. And it can take as long as two or three years. So this guy had to be miserable. The word dysentery is bad enough, and then you add the time length. It's just no good at all. So Paul goes into his father, and he spends time with him. It says that Paul laid his hands on the man and prayed for him, and the man was healed. So then we go back, and we go, wait a minute. They thought he was a god. Is this further proving he's a god? No, it doesn't further prove anything because he wasn't a god, but it doesn't point towards that because Paul doesn't heal him of his own accord or his own power, his own strength. No, he appeals to the one true God and asks God to bring the healing. So the power comes from God, not himself. So the next time you roll into a situation and want to help somebody out, don't think that the power comes from you. Rather, whatever you're doing to help out in the scenario should be empowered by the Holy Spirit at work within you, and it's God doing the work, not you. And so in this scenario, we see that the man is healed, and it points back to Paul's trust in God. And then what does it say there in verse 9? It says that the other people of the island who were sick and needed healing came to him and they were healed too. That reminds me a lot of Jesus's ministry. Like Jesus's ministry was not entirely about healing. It was about salvation. Yes, the kingdom of God. Yes, but God chose to use Jesus in situations where he brought healings that pointed to the kingdom of God. And so here is Paul in a similar situation. And what I see here is not, let's look at Paul and see how amazing he is, but rather let's look at his faithfulness to God. Therefore, God chose to continue to use him in his ministry to those around him. So we see faithfulness by, God, uh, by Paul and God choosing to do his work in the midst of it all. The whole story like I said, that we've read in these 10 verses, is only a three-month period. But three months is a long time to only have 10 verses written about it, right? So in three months' day, we see that they meet new people. We see that Paul is bitten by a snake. We see that he meets the leader of the island. And we see that he heals many people. But we only have 10 verses here. There's not a ton of details. So here's some questions that you may have. They said he was a god, and yet there's no record of him saying, hold up, guys, I'm not a god. So the question is, did he tell him them that he wasn't a god? Well, based on his last reaction in chapter 14 and the fact that God used him, I, I anticipate confidently, while it's not recorded here by Luke, that Paul told him, I'm not a god, right? 
Another thing that's not recorded here is preaching. So the question is, did Paul preach while he was on the island? I don't know, but I do believe by his track record and his faithfulness to God and God using him that three months was more than ample enough time for Paul to preach because Paul would drop at the prover- uh, sorry, Paul would preach at the proverbial drop of a hat. So there's no doubt in my mind that Paul found a time to preach. And then the other thing that it doesn't answer, the question is, did people come to faith? I don't know whether people came to faith, but I do know this. Based on Paul's track record, he faithfully ministered and cared for people and shared the gospel and sought to disciple people. And whether people came to faith or not is, is beside the point. The point is that Paul was faithful to do ministry as God led him to do. So my question is, what is God calling you to do? And are you faithful with that? And I want to be really careful here, because when I say, what is God calling you to do, I'm not necessarily talking about, is he calling you to be a pastor? I'm not necessarily asking you, is he calling you to be a missionary? I'm not necessarily asking, is God calling you to be an elder or, or a hope group leader? Because God calls us and uses us in many different capacities. It doesn't negate the importance of the serving of a pastor or a missionary, But it doesn't elevate that to anything else either. Are you currently being faithful to what God has called you to be about? You're like, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. What's God called me to? Well, in that scenario, if God has called you to be a stay-at-home mom, that means there are kids at the house with you. And that means you have lots of opportunity to disciple your kids. Now, dads, hold up here. Don't go with that. That's why I got a stay-at-home mom. She can disciple the kids. No. just means her opportunity is a little bit different than yours. If you're working 40 hours a week, and she's, don't get me wrong, she's working more than 40 hours a week, but she's in the house while doing it, right? Okay? So, dads, that doesn't mean you come to the house, prop it up, get the newspaper, watch the ball game, and don't invest in the lives of your kids because the reality is that call to you, dads, is there too. You're like, I'm just a school teacher. Oh my goodness. Think about all the opportunities there. I'm, I'm a guy that works at an office complex and I work in my cubicle. There's a few other people in the office, but I don't really know. Like you have break time, you have conversations, you have business deals, you have all kinds of things that you interact with people. The reality is this, regardless of your station of life, retired, working, student, uh, in between, not knowing what you're going to do, confined to a bed or a wheelchair, God uses you if you will allow him to call you and respond in faithfulness to him. You see, Paul did not find himself, I know it's not recorded this way, I just think I can read between the lines. Paul did not find himself as a victim on the island of Malta and say, look at me, poor little me, I had to swim up to shore here and then I got a gum snake to bite me and my life is falling apart and I don't know what to do. No, the reality is this, Paul was consistently faithful to what God has called him to do. The hero of the story is not Paul. He's simply an example that you and I in our lives, whatever our life brings to us, God calls us to be faithful to him. No matter what the situation was, Paul saw that he was never off duty. The reality is you and I are not off duty either. You know, in my life, thankfully in our church, what I'm about to say is not true. 
But there are some pastors and missionaries that will come to the end of their paid vocation and they will retire from being a pastor or a missionary and it's like they're not at church any longer. Like they're not engaged with the gospel. Then I want to say, not judgmentally, but I want to say, were you in it just for the paycheck? Which depending on where you're at, that may, may or may not be a lot of paycheck, but did you do it for the paycheck? Were you a professional pastor? Or are you still a minister just as much after you retire as you were all along the way? And the reality is whatever we're doing in life, we're not to retire from ministry. We are to actively engage in sharing the gospel with people around us and be faithful to the call that God has on our life. Paul could have said, you know what? I'm supposed to be in Rome preaching the gospel, so while I'm in Malta, I mean, it's an island in the Mediterranean. It's a kickback and enjoy the, the life while I'm here, right? No, he stayed faithful to the ministry that God has called him to. Again, we don't have a lot of details here. We don't know what all he did, but I know based on his track record and some context clues here that he was faithful in this moment. So I've got a few questions. I, I say a few because I think it's four or five right here, okay? So if you want to text me later, I'll send it to you. Or go back and watch this on video, like on the website. But here are the questions. Do you find yourself distracted by worries of life? Or do you continue to minister in the middle of it all? Maybe you're not shipwrecked on Malta, but maybe you are up to your eyeballs with responsibilities at work and you love your little kids, but they are also a handful, which all of us are, right? You love your job, but it's taxing and tiring. You're overcommitted and you don't know what to do, or there's problems and issues in your life. Are you, do you find yourself distracted by those things, or do you continue to minister in the middle of it all? Here's another question. Do you find yourself faithful to God, because remember we're saying that Paul was faithful to God and that you and I should be faithful to God. Do you find yourself faithful to God only when things are going good? You're like, as long as I can see God's providential care for me and it's tangible and visible and reality and I feel good that I'm going to be faithful to God, but as soon as things seem to go south, I'm going to not be faithful. No, the call on our lives is to be faithful to God constantly. Constantly. And that's not just sharing the gospel. That's how we engage with activity on the internet, with conversations we have, with our thought life, with our words and our attitudes and our outlook, our demeanor, our body language, all kinds of ways that we're called to be faithful to God. Here's another question. Are you currently living a life of faithfulness to God? Are you faithfully following Jesus. And then a follow-up question with that is, if you're not faithfully in all aspects of your life following Jesus, what is it that God is calling you to do or to be or to respond or engage with in order to be more faithful? In other words, what areas of your life are you seeing an indication of lack of faithfulness? And what's God calling you to do? Repent of sin. Be in an accountable relationship with someone else. Pray about it. Research. Study. Call the church office and set up an appointment with one of our staff or one of our elders. Be more engaged in your hope group to share some of these things. What is God calling you 
to do or be about in order to exemplify more faithfulness. The text we've looked at today reminds us that God uses everything for his glory and for our effectiveness, and that he's providentially caring for us, and he's calling us to remain faithful to him. I want to close this time with talking about justice. You're like, what's he doing here? All right, go back with me mentally to those first six verses. And it says that when the snake bit Paul and clung to his hand, and the natives saw it, they said, look at that. Justice is getting him. He's going to get what is coming his way. He's a murderer. He survived the shipwreck. But by golly, thankfully, the snake has bit him. And the gods and goddesses and fate are going to take him out because that's what he deserves. And justice is going to prevail. Little did they know he wasn't a murderer. Little did they know there's not a goddess called justice. The reality is God was with him. But the truth of the matter is that not only is God with him, but the God that was with Paul, the only true God, is a God of justice. That means he's right. He's holy. He's perfect. He expects and demands perfection as well. And at the same time, a part of God's justice is that he makes things right. My question is, do you know God as your God of justice? Let me describe what I mean. Scripture is clear. All of us, at multiple times in our life, have chosen to walk away from God and live life like we want to and rebel against God and curse His name and, and, and sin. And Scripture says that the just reward for our sin is what? Death. For the wages of sin is death. What is a wage? It's something you earn or deserve. So therefore, if God, which he is a God of justice, stay with me, if God always gave us everything we earned or deserved, then 100% of us would end up in a place called hell. Because what we deserve is death. Not just physical, but more importantly, spiritual death, separation from a holy, perfect God. But praise God that our just God not only always brings about justice, he provided a way for that justice to be served, and yet we could be forgiven of our sins. See, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but what the gift of god is what eternal life through christ jesus so has there been a time in your life where you've acknowledged god i am a sinner and i can't do this on my own have you trusted in jesus who came and lived a perfect life a life that you and i cannot live he lived a fully just righteous perfect life and yet he willingly died on the cross he took our sins on his shoulders on his back the weight of the world upon him and he died in our place so that you and i if we place our faith and our trust in him do not die but instead we are made right with god through the just act of jesus christ on the cross but not only did he die on the cross, three days later he was raised again. He was able to overcome sin and death and the grave. And therefore you and I can experience salvation through what Jesus has done on our behalf. You see, God is a just God. 
And his just judgment, which Scripture talks about, is going to go like this. Upon our death, or upon the return of the coming King, Jesus Christ, whichever comes first, we will stand at the judgment seat of God, and he will make a determination based not on what we have done, but rather whether or not we have received the free gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. And therefore, does he see the forgiveness of our sins through what Christ has done for us and his righteousness placed on us? Or is he not going to see that? And therefore, are we going to spend eternity in hell or will we spend eternity in heaven with him? This morning... This morning, I don't want you to just walk away and go, God loves me and cares for me. I don't want you to just walk away and say, oh, I'm supposed to be faithful and work harder for God. No, I'm calling us to first and foremost trust in Jesus for salvation and then through that process, then rest in the providential care of God while we faithfully obey his commands. What's God calling you to do this morning? Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness that is always available to us, not based on anything that we've done or any prayer that we pray per se, but rather it's from a faith in Jesus Christ and the free gift of grace that is extended through him. Father, I pray right now that you'd bring conviction to people who don't know you as their Savior. That today they would trust in you for salvation. Father, I pray that you would bring salvation not only around the globe, but you would bring salvation among people who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, but haven't really fully understood it or accepted it, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that you'd work in the lives of those who have already said yes to you and trusted in you for salvation, that we would see your providential care for us and that we'd faithfully live a life that would honor you and glorify you. And God, I pray that you'd use us as a church family to do that very thing. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts and our minds this morning through the work of the Holy Spirit and that his conviction would move us to action and that his work in our lives would move us to obedience. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing a couple of songs. And during both songs, I'll be available here at the front if you want to come and pray with me. The altar is open for you to pray here. You can pray there at your seat. During the second song, we'll pass some offering plates where you can drop offering and or connection card. But I would like to ask you, if you would like to come and pray with me, I'll be available here. You say yes to whatever God is leading you to do this morning. Let's sing.